So take your Bible, if you would, and find Mark chapter 1, beginning in verse 16. Mark chapter 1, beginning in verse 16. We're in the middle of this series entitled, Four Pillars of Positive Change. If you weren't here last week, I really want to ask you to go to our website and listen to that sermon from last, last week, because that was the main thing that we talked about, and that is participation and attendance in the Sunday morning worship gathering. So if you didn't hear that, please go back and listen to that. We want to adopt, though, four mindsets so we can make West Haven a brighter light in a darkening world. Now, again, last week I mentioned the, the main pillar is to be here on Sunday mornings. That's the main culture shift we want to be able to make together so we can thrive together as a local church. When we regularly come together, as the Bible teaches, we, the, the Holy Spirit begins to weld our hearts together as one, and that's when we make Jesus unmissable in Leavenworth County. And we need each of you. So we could double, triple, or, or quadruple our kingdom impact that we have in this area by that. And, you know, we want to spend our lives pursuing something bigger than we are. You look around today and people are living for pleasure and trivia. And the French used to, and I took two years of French in high school and two years of college, so I need to get to use it somewhere. So I guess I'm going to use it right now. The French used to call it ennui. Nobody's impressed with my friend's pronunciation, but um, my college teacher said, you are the only person I've ever heard speak French with an Ozark accent. She was not impressed. <laughs> but that's E-N-N-U-I, and it means trivia. It means a chronic boredom that can only be cured by the next big thing. The person who lives for that ennui, just pleasure and trivia, someday they die, and it's as if they never lived. Believers can invest their lives forever by investing in the body of Christ, the local church. So that's the first pillar of positive change, regular attendance and participation in the church. Today's the second pillar. We want to create what I'm going to call a culture of invitation. A culture of invitation to make it normative for you to consistently invite someone to join you here on Wednesdays and Sundays. And the goal is evangelism. Now, it could be successfully argued that inviting someone to church isn't evangelism, but we're just trying to meet you where you are. If you're at ground zero regarding evangelism, you say, you know, I, I, just, I don't have any idea where to begin, then this is a great place to start. Ask someone if you can pick them up for church. Maybe go to lunch afterward, and it sets the table for a conversation about Jesus. Now, I preached long enough to know what some of you are thinking. You're thinking, this isn't me. Man, I can't do this. You're already starting to turn things off. Hang in there. You can. And I'm going to prove that to you through this simple passage of Scripture this morning. I, I think this will be so encouraging to you. Let's read Mark chapter 1, beginning in verse 16. The Bible says, as he, referring to Jesus, as he was going along by the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net in the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. Going on a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were also in the boat mending the nets. Immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and went away to follow him. Becoming fishers of men, number one, any Christian can do it. 
Look at verse 17. Jesus said, I will make you fishers of men. So let me start with some questions, and this is for all of you. Students, you, you children, kiddos, listen, because you're some of the best evangelists in the whole world. So here are the questions. How many of you have been fishing? No one. Unbelievable. Two or three. How many of you have been fishing? Come on. All right. Have you ever caught a fish? Okay. Did you like catching the fish? Sure you did, and it's a lot of fun. Somebody said no. That, was, that might have been Kevin Cobb. He never catches when he goes out, right? <laughs> He's not even listening to me. If you were a kid, you may not have known what to do when you pulled that little fishy out of the water, but man, it was fun. So most everyone has fished, and Jesus uses an activity common to man to illustrate that any Christian can do it. Jesus makes those who follow him fishers of men. So how do we know if we're following him? Well, first of all, a writer named Joseph Stoll points out that a Christian leaves his nets behind. He leaves his nets behind. Look at verse 20. When Jesus said, follow me, Peter and Andrew immediately left their nets and followed him. Well, fishing was the way they made a living. They couldn't drag fishing nets behind them, so they left them behind to follow Jesus. Is it possible that you're holding on to a net? Now, what is a net? It's anything that inhibits or prohibits you from following Jesus. It might be things. We've been absorbed into a culture that celebrates things. We even can derive a sense of significance from what we own or how much we make. And if anything inhibits you or prohibits you from following Jesus, then there's your net. It may be things. For others, it may actually be people. There are relationships that inhibit your walk with Christ. I mean, you know that if you walk with Jesus, this person or persons is going to shun you but you value the social capital they give you or something they do for you or maybe their family and you know they'll shun you well if that's the case then that person is your net it may be people it may be your plans you know your plans aren't going to help you follow jesus but you want what you want even though you know jesus always has a better plan now if that's so there's your net Imagine if Andrew and Peter and James and John said, Jesus, we'll keep our nets and we'll stay in our boats, but we'll still believe in you. What would have been the result? Well, instead of following Jesus' plan and becoming apostles, at the end of their life, they would have had a boatload of fish heads to put in the nail-scarred hands of the Savior. So to follow Jesus, we abandon our nets. Number two, to follow Jesus, we accept discomfort. Later in the book of Mark, Jesus elaborated on what it means to follow him, and he said, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. So for Jesus, the cross meant suffering, giving up the glory of heaven to become human flesh, to become despised by men, and to humble himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. That's what the cross meant for Jesus. For us, it means a willingness to experience discomfort as a result of following Him. Now, the problem really isn't found in taking up the cross. We can do that. The problem is when discomfort comes, we want to lay it back down. 
But taking up a cross is not some special level of Christianity. It's what a believer does. It's synonymous with being saved. So to follow Jesus, you leave your nets, you pick up your cross, and number three, you get out of the water. Following Jesus means a separation from the ungodly world. Light has no fellowship with darkness. To become a fisher of men, you have to put a line in the lake. You can't do that if you're swimming in the lake. And you know, we may tout our freedom in Christ, and we can laugh at the self-imposed strictures of years ago. I remember hearing a guy, anybody, I'm just curious, anybody ever hear the name Lester Roloff? That name, Keith, I figured you, you're the only one. He was what I call a furniture breaker. I mean, he'd stand up in the pulpit and just fire and brimstone. I listened to him preach a sermon about television one time. Uh, an old recording, and about half of it I kind of chuckled about, and about half of it I was really convicted by. Some of those old folks, they knew what they were doing. So we can say, well, they were so strict, and now we understand freedom. And in some areas, sure, that's true. But I want you to listen to what Charles Spurgeon said. Your cravings show how rotten your hearts are. If you have a hungering after dog's meat, go and eat the garbage. If you were God's children, you would loathe the very thought of the world's evil joys. And your question would not be, how much may we be like the world? But your one cry would be, how far can we get away from the world? Now, I thank God that these three points describe many of you. You've left your nets, you abandoned them, you accept discomfort, and you've gotten out of the water. Now, Jesus still wants to make us a fisher of those in the water. How can that happen? This is the central part of this sermon. You believe Jesus' promise. Look in your Bibles at verse 17. Jesus said, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Jesus will do it. That's his promise. If you follow him, he will do that in your life. My question is, do you believe him? Do you believe that promise? Just a simple trust. This is such a gentle and hopeful promise. He didn't say, now take a course in evangelism and get really good at it first. He didn't say, now you need a certain kind of personality. He said, if you follow me, I will change you. When Jesus saves us by his grace, we can remember what we were. And it's easy to remember this sinner that we currently are. But think about what he can make you be. Jesus never said, follow me because, you know, I see something in you. I, I, there's something in you I think I can work with. No, he's saying, follow me because I will put something in you to make you into a fisher of men. Jesus changes us. Now, how will he do that? Just consider two ways. One is that he will give you giftings and abilities you didn't have. When you were saved, the Bible teaches that the Holy Spirit gives you spiritual gifts. And no matter the gift, he can use it in fishing. He can use it in his unique way. You don't have to rewire your personality. You hear a little about Andrew in Scripture. He appears to be a quiet man. Peter, as you know, was impulsive and rash. James and John were called the sons of thunder. I, I, I imagine, I mean, the Bible doesn't say this, but just by that nickname, I imagine they used to like to fight a lot. In fact, they wanted to call down fire on some Samaritans, if you remember. 
None of these men were equipped to evangelize, yet Jesus changed them all into fishers of men. So he'll give you giftings and abilities you don't have. And then secondly, Jesus draws the fish into the net. In Luke chapter 5, the disciples had been fishing all night and caught nothing. And Jesus told them to throw out the nets. Well, Peter is tired from a night of fishless fishing. But he said to Jesus, because you say so, I will let down the nets. And they caught more fish than they could handle. Jesus is Lord of all. He can make the fish jump out of the river onto the riverbank if he wants. So as you fish for men, remember this. You aren't talking anyone into anything. You let the life of Jesus flow through you. Jesus works through human means, but God draws the fish. Jesus said, no man can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. So a simple invitation to church is a way to get this entire conversation started. And that's a culture we want to develop. So first of all, when it comes to fishing for men, any Christian can do it. Second, you live like a fisherman. Now what's involved in fishing? Well, first of all, there's diligence. A person who makes his living fishing is very diligent. He has to stay at it. He also has to be attentive. He pays attention to how the fish respond. I used to fish the same pond when I was a kid, and I started trying to notice where did I usually catch the fish, when did I usually catch them, and what lures worked better than others. So if I'm going to share the gospel with someone, I, you know, I try to scout them on social media or ask someone if possibly they know them because I'm looking for a conversation point or a common interest of some kind. So there's attentiveness. There's also perseverance. You keep fishing even if you didn't catch the day before, anything the day before, and that's because there's opposition to fishing. Now, I don't fish anymore. And one of the reasons I quit was I got tired of all the obstacles. Weeds and chiggers and mosquitoes and snakes and heat and deadwood or driftwood, depending on the body of water. I tipped over a tackle box more than once. Anybody do that? I never got a hook in myself, but I did catch a catfish one time, and it got me on the palm of my left hand, and I still have an odd-looking scar from it. So I said, I quit. <laughs> well, a fisher of men keeps fishing despite the opposition. He trusts God's promise that God will work through him. A fisherman can't even see the fish. Putting a line in the water is an act of faith. And by the way, that line in the water has a hook. So here's another American church myth that we need to deflate. If someone becomes upset with you over your witness, you've failed. That's a myth. That seems to me from what I hear to be the biggest barrier to people wanting to engage in personal evangelism. What if they're upset? Friend, listen. The gospel is inherently offensive. Take the offense out of the gospel, you have no gospel. If you present it often enough, somewhere along the line, someone will be offended. Now, that's not usually the case. Most people just shrug it off. I shrugged it off when it was presented to me as a 17-year-old. So as you fish for men, you're bound eventually to do or say something that is unpopular. When that happens, realize you have a line in the water with a hook on it, and now you're officially fishing. By the way, you're not farming. Farming has a formula. 
You till, plant, fertilize, and harvest. You're dependent on the weather. Granted, that take that for granted. But for the most part, follow the formula and you get a harvest. Not so with fishing. You may fish and catch a whole string of fish or you may pull empty hooks out of the water for years. You're not farming. Neither are you hunting. First Peter says we speak with gentleness and respect. Several years ago, we were involved in some mission work, and for a time, I was involved with some men who were not part of our church, and one of them was speaking in such a rude manner and supposedly witnessing to people, and, and I heard him make a statement to another man he was with. He said, I'm going to keep at it until I get another notch in my belt. That is not our attitude ever. People are not notches. They're human beings whose souls we want Jesus to redeem. So we speak with gentleness and respect. We aren't hunting. We are working. You can't sit in an armchair and catch fish. Fishermen go out in bad weather. He who watches the wind will not sow, and he who watches the clouds will not reap. You are working. And you aren't called to improve the water. Liberalism changed the church's mission from individual salvation to cultural transformation. So instead of trying to rescue people out of the world, liberalism made the church's mission to try to improve the world. Now, do we try to bless people? You bet we do. Look at all the things we do as a church. We're trying to encourage you to sign up Saturday for that carnival. We had that job fair. Absolutely. But our mission is to spread God's message that God became man in Jesus Christ, the incarnation, that Christ died on the cross for our sins, the atonement, that he broke the power of death by his resurrection, that he offers the forgiveness of sins, hope for the future, and a new life in himself to whoever will believe in him. And those who receive him have everlasting life and will experience everlasting joy with Jesus. But we're not called to improve the water. However, we do need the right equipment. Fishing then required a net. There was a Puritan named Thomas Boston, and he wrote a little book. You can find this online. This is a, it's a little PDF, and it's called, the, this title is amazing. It's called The Art of Man Fishing. He said the net is made up of the promises of God. It's the message that he will save those who come to him, but he cautioned that the mesh of the net can't be too wide. Statements like, God loves you, have no meaning because the fish will swim right through that. Most people will agree with vague statements about faith and joy and hope. So he said the net has to have weights, the truth of God's word, to go low enough in the water to catch the fish. No one ever comes to Jesus until they know their need of Him. That they and all people are lost sinners and will die in their sins without Jesus. Once they know their need, then they can receive His great mercy. Now the whole goal of this sermon is to create in your mind and in this church a culture of invitation to bring people into the preaching of the Word and the fellowship of the church as a starting point for a gospel conversation. That's Jesus' promise. Any Christian can do it. He'll make you a fisher of men. Any Christian can do it. Live like a fisherman. Number three, he changes us when we do it. Now here's some of the ways. 
First of all, he creates a new culture. Look at verse 16. That's just a summary statement of how Peter became a follower of Jesus. But John chapter 1 goes into detail. It says, Andrew went to Simon and says, we have found the Messiah. Peter met Jesus because of a personal invitation. Andrew got him to Jesus. Jesus said to Peter, follow me. And Peter became a disciple because of a personal invitation. John 1 says, Philip told Nathanael about Jesus. So Nathanael met Jesus and became a follower through a personal invitation. So just think about your circle of friends, family, neighbors. Make it normal to invite them to church. Some people come to Jesus through the public preaching of the Bible, whether it be Sunday morning or in a class or in an Awana ministry. Other people come to Jesus by the personal witness of a friend, but the vast majority come to Jesus through a combination of both. And each Sunday here, we in some way try to cast the gospel net. Every Sunday, there are people here and watching online whose sins are not forgiven. So let's develop this culture of invitation to bring people here so they can meet Jesus. And let's do something else. Every time we meet, let's expect that the Holy Spirit will do the work He says He will do. That he will convict people of sin and righteousness and the judgment to come and bring them to Jesus. A young pastor reportedly went to Charles Spurgeon one day and he was upset because people weren't being converted through his ministry. And Spurgeon said, what, do you expect someone to be converted every time you preach? And the pastor said, well, no, of course not. And Spurgeon said, there's your problem. <laughs> he creates a new culture. Second, he generates a new love. These four men fish for a living. Now, I'm going to superimpose one of my experiences on this. This is not, this is just me, a little bit of speculation here, but I, I told most of you, I grew up on the Mississippi River, and so there were people who fished for a living, and you, we were kind of on a bluff, and then you go down this little hill, and it was called River Road. And it was a gravel road, literally a few feet from the river, and then the people who fished for a living lived behind the gravel road. And did they get flooded out? They did all the time. They, but they were great people. They really were. They were salt-of-the-earth people. They were just kind and pleasant and uh, you know, they were, I can't say enough good things about them, but they were loners. They didn't talk much, and you couldn't get them from River Road up into the town. In fact, you, you couldn't get them to church, so they went down there and built a little chapel so they would go to church there. That's just the, the personality. Well, I can't help but wonder if these fishermen, Peter, Andrew, James, and John, were kind of similar to that because you keep reading, and you know, at one point, they said, Jesus, send these crowds away. We don't want these people around. They didn't want little children at one point to come to Jesus. They didn't seem comfortable around people, but God eventually gave them a heart for a lost world, and 11 of the 12 gave their lives to spread the gospel to human beings. So he generates a new love, and then, I love this part, he creates a new interest. Now this is easily observable. You ask someone if you can pick them up for church. By the way, an invitation is kind of vague. Sure, I'll come sometime. Hey, I'll pick you up at you know, 8.15 to bring you to Sunday school. They say yes. Suddenly, you are super interested in everything to do with the church. 
What's the sidewalk like? Are the windows clean? Are the bathroom clean? What's the temperature? Where are we going to sit? And you pray for them and you talk to them and you can't wait until Sunday. So if you consider yourself a sleepy Christian or you feel like apathy has overtaken you, invite someone to church and it's just like fishing because when that bobber in the line begins to move, or bobber in the water begins to move, you suddenly become really interested. You grab that pole back and you watch that bobber with complete attention. So here's another way he changes this, and this is the last thing. He clarifies why he came. Verse 18 says, immediately they left their nets and followed him. They saw something compelling about Jesus right away. Later they learn his purpose. The Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost, and that's what he's doing today. And I want to say that this could be for you the exact moment in time God brought you here so you could be saved. He's used other people to fish for you. He's used the preaching of God's Word, and now He's calling you to Himself. And how do you know that? Because, number one, you want to reject sin. That's just called repentance. And then you want to believe on Jesus as the Lord of your life to become a follower of His. You believe that He died on the cross in your place, you believe he was buried and rose again. You believe he broke the power of sin and death by his resurrection and will save those who believe on him. Friend, if you've never been saved, whether you're here or watching online, I want to invite you to believe on him right now. And maybe you would say, I'm not sure. I want to think about it more. Well, we would love to talk to you about that, but the Bible says something that's very interesting. It says, today is the day of salvation. Tara recently found a YouTube video about the tsunami that hit Japan in 2011. It was stunning. Warnings continually sounded across the city. And in one clip, there was a civil servant with a bullhorn pleading with people to flee. He was pleading with people who were standing on a concrete walkway overlooking the ocean. And he's bellowing out warnings. They ignored him. And the camera angle was from atop the building, and you could see the tsunami approaching. It only looked like just a ripple in the water. just slowly came in. It didn't look like a tidal wave, but when it hit the shore, it annihilated every single thing in its path. Don't wait until it's too late. Believe on Him today. If you want to talk to Nathan or Kirk or I, complete that card Put it in that little basket at the back of the worship center or just talk to us afterward. We would love the opportunity to have that conversation with you. Let's go to the Lord in prayer.